Blog Talk Radio. Diabetes Late Night. Party girls, don't get hurt, can't feel anything. When will I learn? I push it down, I push it down. I'm the one for a good time call, phone's blowing up. Bring up my doorbell, I feel the love, I feel the love. songwriter Sia. That was her hit song, Chandeliers, and tonight Sia is helping us to shed some light on the emotional side of living with diabetes. Specifically, we'll be talking about depression. If you have diabetes, either type 1 or type 2, you have an increased risk of developing depression. And if you're depressed, you may have a greater chance of developing type 2 diabetes. But there is some good news, um, and that is that diabetes and depression can be treated together. And effectively managing one can have a positive effect on managing the other. I'll be talking to Dr. Beverly S. Adler later on in the show about this topic of diabetes and depression. Now, although our musical inspiration, Sia, made headlines recently performing at Jennifer Aniston's secret wedding, uh, did you guys see all the pictures in People magazine? Uh, she's probably best known for hiding her face behind a big white wig. Now, why would she do something like that? Well, Sia says if anyone, if anyone besides famous people knew what it was like to be famous, they would never want to be famous. I don't want to be famous or recognizable, she added. I've been writing pop songs for pop stars now for a couple of years, and I've become friends with them, and I've seen what their life is like, and I can honestly say that's not something I want. All right, well, good for you, Sia, because she's got incredible talent, and that's definitely something that doesn't go unnoticed. Throughout the podcast, we will be playing selected cuts from Sia's album, A Thousand Forms of Fear, courtesy of Sony Music. Now, it's no accident that tonight I chose to play Sia because she's openly admitted that she has suffered from depression as well as from addiction to painkillers and alcohol in the past. I think it's so interesting that someone who speaks so openly about her addiction as well as coping with depression would choose to hide her face. 
when the vast majority of us seem to do the complete opposite. We show our faces every day, but we won't expose our problems to our friends or family. So maybe we should all start wearing white wigs. I don't know. Hit me up with your ideas about that on Facebook or go to our chat room right now and share a message. Listen, tonight, joining me on this show will be the Charlie's Angels of Outreach, Patricia Addy Gentle and Dr. Beverly S. Adler. Plus, we've got authors of Horror Cars, poet Lorraine Brooks, Mama Rosemarie, and you. That's right. Tonight, you can join the conversation with us by calling into our studio line at 347-215-8551. Stay tuned for more Diabetes Late Night, but before we kick things off, Let's take a minute and donate to DivaBetic at divabetic.org. Your tax-deductible contributions are greatly appreciated. Let's hear another cut from Sia's album, 1,000 Forms of Fear, courtesy of Sony Music. Late Night, I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and that was Big Girls Cry by Sia. I want to thank everyone for sending me cards and messages congratulating us on our fifth year anniversary of podcasting. It has been truly been a pleasure to bring you a new form of diabetes empowerment and education via our podcast, and I hope you check them all out at iTunes, DivaBedick.org, or Blog Talk Radio. Now, make sure to join us next month because we're going to be celebrating our second, well, not celebrating, we're going to be presenting our second annual Divabetic Mystery Theater presentation with best-selling author Tanya Cappies. The uh, mystery show is called Phantom of the Okra. I'm so excited because our narrator for that show is with me tonight. Please welcome to the show poet Lorraine Brooks. Hi, Max. Hi, Lorraine. How are you doing tonight? I'm very well. How are you? Good. I heard you're heading out early to go to a Mets game. I am. If it doesn't rain, it's supposed to rain here in New York, as you know. Yeah, weather weather like that can definitely be depressing, right? Yeah, 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 I guess it can, but I'm going to forge ahead just the same. Well, you know, tonight we're talking about depression and diabetes with musical inspiration from Sia, and, um, you know, I know that... Uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, she hides her face. It's kind of interesting because we have such an outspoken approach to living with diabetes. I know you're really open and honest with your friends about uh, your diagnosis. Do you think, but the vast majority of people seem to keep it in hiding. What are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, I, it, it took me a while to, to be able to talk about it so I can understand that too. It took me a while before I was able to say it out loud and tell people about it. I was a little embarrassed and ashamed and a little afraid and, you know, um, just didn't want to admit that there was something that I considered wrong with me. So, um, I, I, you know, I, 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 to me, it, it's all, almost a part of, you know, the, the, the natural acceptance. I think we all go through kind of a denial thing and not really wanting to talk about it or admit that it's happening, but... 
you know, eventually you, you learn to deal with it and you learn that it's okay to talk about it, and it, it's um, it's a process, I think. I definitely agree, and I hope we're there to help people every step of the way and to check out divabetic.org for more inspiration like several of the poems you've written we post on the uh, website. Now, when you're not writing poetry, you're doing a lot of counseling and drug and alcohol, correct? That's true. Okay, so, you know, tonight we're talking about diabetes, and I was on social media, and I was reading that alcohol and drug addiction can cause mental health issues, but mental health issues do not cause addiction. However, some mental health issues, especially those that are not quickly diagnosed or treated, can trigger use of alcohol and drugs. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on this whole subject and just people using maybe drugs and alcohol for self-medicating purposes? Well, you know, it's funny because it's interesting that you say that. There's a lot of uh, research in the field now that is – it's it's still a controversial topic whether um there's a there's a you know a causal relationship between um alcoholism and mental illness or vice versa um and even as it relates to something like domestic violence you know there's there's not been any any research that i know of that really specifically says that one causes the other but they often um are related in that you know, people who who drink or use drugs tend to um, sometimes act out in bad ways. Um, but I think that um, uh, you know, there, there, there's always something. There's always um, some element of of uh, emotion emotionality. I think in in everything that we do, including um, you know, talking about any diseases we might have. I mean, I think that uh, I think that's perfectly natural. I think a lot of people do use alcohol and other drugs to self self medicate if they have uh, panic attacks or if they have um, uh, depression. And uh, you know, uh, we try to um, uh, tell people that they have to deal with the underlying causes for their drinking or for their using drugs or they'll, you know, not be able to really uh, successfully um, treat the addiction. So I think they often go hand in hand. I'm not sure one actually causes the other, but I think you see it coexisting a lot. Yeah, I think so, too. I definitely agree with that. I think, uh, I think well, there's such a stigma still surrounding therapy and the idea of even seeking help uh, professional help, not only just talking to your friends and family, but the idea of going to a therapist seems like that's still taboo for many people. Yeah, I think there's still a lot of stigma about it. You know, I think there's still a lot of feeling that uh, people should just kind of get over it, you know, and and um, somehow or other we, we think that if we have a mental or emotional problem that it doesn't need professional help. You know, I always say to people, if you have a toothache, you have to go to a dentist. So if you have a, a heartache or an emotional ache, why, why wouldn't you go to a therapist? It makes perfect sense to me, but somehow we still have to convince people that that's the case. And um, I'm hoping, and I know, Max, that all of your listeners um, uh, listen very closely to the topics that you present, and I'm hoping that um, uh, people will start to you know, break through that and, and start to understand that there shouldn't be a stigma involved in uh, seeking help for any anything, regardless of what it is. I agree, and I know that's the subject of your poem tonight. So why don't you share with us your original poem for tonight's Diabetes Late Night? 
Well, as you know, I'm a, I'm a very big advocate of therapy. I myself am in therapy, and it's been very helpful to me. So uh, the name of my poem is Can We Talk? Can we talk is a phrase that Joan Rivers would say because sometimes we need to be clear. Some things need discussion, and sometimes it helps just to find a sympathetic ear. Friends are not always the best ones to try because friends are not always objective. A therapist might be the person to talk to to get an outside perspective. No, you're not crazy. No, you're not nuts. And you don't have to be on the border. A counselor can help you with any complaints from depression to panic disorder. The stresses and strains of a chronic disease can be hard to deal with, it's true. And having a person understand your concerns is a blessing for me and for you. I wish we would stop telling each other it's bad to talk to a pro because there's lots of things that professionals have that we cannot possibly know. My therapist helps me stay balanced and straight in spite of my worries and fears. She helps give me insight and lets me express both my happiness and my sad tears. So don't hide behind being scared to reach out. It takes a village to cope. Find a support group, make a connection, and you'll find fulfillment and hope. Wow, Lorraine, our audience went crazy for that. That was like a standing, <laughs> a standing ovation right there. But, Amazing. I love it. You know, um, next one, uh, that was just incredible. I, I really believe in what you said, and I do hope that people reach out for um, professional help. And we'll be talking later on to Dr. Beverly Adler, who um, is a professional. She's also a certified diabetes educator, and she's living with diabetes. Get her opinion on our topic of depression and diabetes tonight. Thank you so much, Max, and um, have a great show. I'm sorry I can't hang around, but, uh, uh, you know, sometimes baseball comes first. What can I tell you? Yeah, and remember to start playing that organ for next <laughs> next month's Mystery Theater. We want you back as the narrator. I'm already practicing. All right. Well, hey, if you're listening to Diabetes Late Night, we're coming up with the author of The Sugarless Plums, The Poor Cars, and I'll be talking to her about her journey living with diabetes as a former ballerina for the New York City Ballet. But right now, it's time for more musical inspiration from Sia. Did you know Sia made a trilogy of videos showcasing modern dance with Maddie Ziegler? The video, uh, the video for our next song, Elastic Heart, currently has more than 59 million views on YouTube. Let's take a listen to that song from Sia's album, A Thousand Forms of Fear, courtesy of Sony Music. That was Sia and her song, Elastic Hearts. Now it's time to meet our very special diva guest, the former soloist of the New York City Ballet, choreographer, instructor, and author of the children's book, 
Ballerina Dreams, and the memoir of the Sugarless Plum, please welcome Zipporah Cars. Hi, Zipporah. Hi. That we were so loud for uh, Lorraine. I don't know what happened. Our audience is taking a break from the green room. Um, <laughs> can you, you I'm can hear me, to right? Have you on the show. I've been watching videos about you all weekend on YouTube and uh, reading excerpts from your book on your website and uh, just learning so much about you. And I know you're also fe- featured in Dr. Bev's book, My Sweet yes. Life: Successful Women Living with Diabetes. So there's a lot our listeners could uh, learn from you on so many different levels. In, on, on such a variety of mediums. I want to jump right in with you because, you know, tonight we're talking about depression. And I want to take you back to the time when you were first diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. You were a principal dancer at the New York City Ballet, and uh, Jerome Robbins is choreographing an, an original dance piece for you specifically to perform. And I know that Jerome's reaction uh, wasn't, was less than favorable to your diagnosis. I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about your story at the beginning, because I'm sure it had to be difficult to be at the height of your career and suddenly find out you're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Well, well act- actually, I was in the core to ballet. I was, I was a, a new member of the company, and I was being picked from the group and being featured. And so the pressure actually was enormous on me. Uh, I, I was seen as somebody who would go on to become a principal dancer, but I had yet to prove myself. And so they were choreographing these new pieces on me, which was an enormous honor by Jerome Robbins and Peter Martins, who is still the director today. And then I received the diagnosis. And I, I, would, I would have to relate it a little bit more to the hiding then to the depression, I, di- I wouldn't say depression hit me at that point because I was in such denial that this could possibly be happening to me. Mm-hmm. What I would say more than anything is I was desperate to hide what was happening to me so I could prove to them. It's not that I didn't tell them that I was diagnosed. I just was desperate to show that it wasn't going to change me in any way and so I could continue to be the promising potential that they, they saw me as. Do you think that the ballet community fosters hiding? Because it seems when you read articles and you see <laughs> things, there's a lot of. A, no, but there are. It seems like there's a lot of uh, people suffer from eating disorders within that community. I yes. know there seems to yes. be a lot of pressure on everyone being perfect all the time yes. in performance, yes. and I just wonder at that moment if the community was kind of supporting you because it it seems like there are a lot of secrets in in ballet. Well, 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 well. Again, and, and I, and I'm sorry that I laugh. That's a nervous laugh because it's, it's just kind of ironically funny that you, you do, you have, you're only as good as your last performance. There, the, the art form which I love and has been my life passion, at its core, is beautiful and magical, and 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 so many things about this life that that touches the essence of our our beauty, and yet, like any profession or anything that becomes uh, within a, a, a container of people, it becomes very dysfunctional. And so you, have, you do have a lot of perfectionism on, on you. And the art form has changed. You know, the 80s, for music and dance and a lot of different self-expressive forms of, of life, it, it's all changed today. There's much, more, um, there's much more pressure to be athletically superior. So... George Balanchine was a genius who brought dance to America, and he loved all shapes and sizes, 
it, he had dancers that had bigger thighs, had larger breasts. When he passed away, um, the people that became the directors that I ended up working for, they valued the athleticism a little bit more, a lot more, over the artistic side of it all. And so I, I've always had the, the look of a ballerina. I had a nice long line, and I had the aesthetic for it. But it was much more artistic. I, I had to really work on the strength part of it and the pressure to prove myself, not as, a, not as an artistic. They all got that. They all saw my enthusiasm and my musicality. They loved me for that. But they were not convinced that I had what it took to be an athlete within this profession and perform night after night after night after night. And so that was my challenge with the diabetes was to prove that. And that's why you get this, a lot of this perfectionism because you can go out there and have a great performance and the next day you're falling all over the place and that's what they'll remember you for. And, and, and guess what? There's a hundred other people who can step into your place. As special as each one of us are, there's a lot of other special people competing for that same part. And not that we're not all supportive of each other within a company, but there is a tremendous pressure and competition because, especially at that level, you're, you're fighting for, for you know, a title that so many thousands of other people are. Wow. Well, that's kind of – I love that insight. All right. Well, guess what? I was so excited about having you on the show. I did the Divabetic Dash and went right to Twitter to get some <laughs> questions for you. Yeah, so in yeah. your game, we've got a couple questions from Twitter. Yes, I'm game. Marjorie wants to talk about your feet. Does it hurt to be on point? And now that you're living with diabetes, are you worried about your feet? Yes, it hurts. Well, first of all, everybody's structure of their feet are different, and some people's feet are perfectly formed to be on, on the, in those toe shoes. Mine were not, and that actually was my biggest struggle as a dancer. I, the, my, most of my injuries, I had a 20-year career, uh, most of them were, I think I broke every metatarsal in my foot. I've sprained numerous times my ankles. But I really honestly struggled so much with, I used to get these corns in the middle of my pinky toe and the fourth toe. So I always had to uh, wear like a spacer in there. But the pressure of that tight, confined toe shoe and being up on point, the way it pressured my bones together, rubbing, I was constantly getting these infections, and in the beginning, this was, you know, I had to learn so many things with diabetes. In the beginning, it would get infected, and before I was diabetic, oh, big deal, I have an infection. So I wasn't used to saying, oh, you've got an infection, you've got to stop. And, of course, the thought of going to my directors and saying I have to miss a performance because I've got a toe infected, you just didn't do something like that. And so I often danced on infections, and I learned the hard way when they almost became blood poisoning and they're saying I could lose my, my toe, that I had to realize that I've, I've got to stop the moment something gets infected. And what I used to do is I would actually cut a hole in the side of my, my point shoe. The audience could never see it, but just to relieve some of the pressure. And I, you know, we're crazy. We, I, would, I danced all the time. I danced on broken toes. I danced on blisters. I danced, you, dance on, you dance in a lot of pain. You just do. Um, but, um, Is it painful to be on point? To, you know what? It's, it's pain. Like I said, it's painful if you have an issue going on and you have a certain injury, yes. But you learn, you learn. They become second nature to you. They become like part of your body because you're in these shoes about 12 hours a day, you're wearing these shoes. So on the good note, they become so much a part of you that when you're on stage in them, they're part of your body. 
The bad part of it is, yeah, you get a blister, you get an infection. It's very painful, yes. All right, so Sarah from, well, I don't know where she's from. She's on Twitter. She says, she wants to know, is there a similarity between the discipline for uh ballet to the discipline of managing your diabetes and do those two work together for you or were they adverse well i think it's a great question i think the fact that i had the discipline to be a dancer it's part of my makeup and my my mentality i don't think ballet created my discipline i think i had the discipline to become the dancer and therefore i had the discipline to be able to manage the diabetes in a way that maybe other people are struggling with because they don't have discipline. I already was disciplined with what I ate. I already had a desire that I needed to feel good. I had a big purpose. What I, what I would say, and this is a sidetrack to that answer, and this is what I say to people, is it's very important to have a passion and something that gives your life meaning because that gives you the impetus to take care of yourself. I had such a huge passion. I had such an investment in needing to feel good and needing to feel, have my blood sugars in the normal range that it made taking, my di- taking care of my diabetes easier because there was no question of what I was going to do. My, my problem was I was misdiagnosed. I, couldn't, I didn't know how to eat. I, it was finding all the right things in order to take care of myself. And then, of course, with all the exercise, how on earth to maintain normal blood sugar levels when you're dancing 12 hours a day and not having low blood sugars all the time. So th- those were more my struggles. The discipline was not my struggle. That, that I came very naturally to me. I now, now you, with, couldn't with wear, that, you couldn't wear a, po- a pump at that time. Were you wearing a pump? You know what? No, I, I retired in 99. The pumps were way too big at that time. Okay. Yeah. So but but, but let, me, let me interject now because this comes back to depression. Later on, once it all hit me and, and, and the years of being that disciplined and trying to hold it together and show a certain face to my directors, then, then the depression hit. I'd say at about – I was diagnosed at age 21. I'd say about age 27, I was hit really, really hard. When I was about to turn, like the week before my 27th birthday, I remember being hit by this wave of, of depression that I had never experienced in my life. And I just think it was the years of trying to be so perfect. Just, just, I, it, it just consumed me, the depression. And how did you get past that? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I, I think... For me, for me, before I was ever a dancer, I was very, um, you know, I come from Los Angeles. I come from a kind of, I wouldn't say hippie mentality, but I was certainly into life. And I'm a process person. I'm I'm into processing. So I think that, that the illness took me on a detour to have to, dance was so my life, and I think I had to, I had to go on the detour where my life be, became bigger and it became dance was part of the journey. It wasn't the end all to my journey. And the bigger journey had to be how to take care of myself, how to value myself no matter what happened with my dance career. And I think how I came out of the depression was coming to terms with that I was going to be okay, whether I ended up being a dancer with the New York City Ballet or not, I um, I had to come first, and valuing myself had to come first. And again, this didn't happen overnight. <laughs> this was this was definitely a process, but I had to let go of it. 
I had to let go of the life I wanted, and, and gre- I had to deeply grieve it and stop, stop pretending that it was going to be okay and that I could have it just the way it was supposed to happen. It wasn't happening the way it was supposed to happen. And like I said, I, I, was, I, I decided I was going to quit is actually what happened. And every day I was going to go in and tell my director, Peter Martins, that I was going to quit and thank you so much for this wonderful experience, but I need to find a more suitable life for a person in my situation. And every day I convinced myself I just need one more ballet, one more performance, one more moment on stage. And what happened is I was really bothered by that because I felt like it was maybe it was another form of denial and I was just putting myself at risk every night. And so I was doing a lot of journaling. And through my journaling, what I came up with for myself was that I was using diabetes as an excuse. And I was trying to convince myself that this was just too hard and it was time for me to quit because I had to accept my diabetes. And it's a very, it's a very fine catch in here. And, and tell me if I'm making sense and how I'm articulating it. That really actually wasn't the truth. I was actually using diabetes as an excuse. The truth was, was I was more heartbroken about not being the dancer that I used to be, that it was actually more painful to be there and be on stage and watching other people doing the leading roles I once did. And I, I, I kind of felt, you know, you know the, um, the, the, that cat, what's her name, in Cats? You know, the I remember uh, uh, the right, memory cat. Buckley, I remember a time Buckley. I knew what happiness was. Mm-hmm. I felt I was 27 years old. I'd be hysterically crying, feeling like the old cat. Like I was remembering a time that I knew when I was innocent and young and it was all over for me. And, and that was so painful that I was convincing myself that diabetes was just not the right place for me. And so when I caught that, that it was being used as an excuse, I said, there's no way I can leave yet because I, I, I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life wondering what I could have done if I stayed and tried a little bit harder. So the truth was I hadn't, been, I hadn't figured out the right insulin regime at that point. I hadn't figured out the right way to eat. I was still experimenting with, you know, in, in the 80s, we were supposed to have a high-carbohydrate diet. And when I was trying a low-carb diet, everybody called me a hypochondriac. They, th- they thought I was anorexic. You know, nowadays, everybody's doing a low-carb diet for right. diabetes. And, you know, they, they literally, people were making me feel horrible about myself. So I was still very unsure and insecure about the right way to handle my diabetes. So what I realized is that I had to hang in there and see, and here's the other thing. I had to hang in there and see if instead of trying to be perfect and trying to be what I used to be, try to see if I can hang in there. And you know what? Sometimes I'm not going to be so good. Sometimes I'm going to fall, fall off a point because I don't feel my extremities in the same way. Maybe my blood sugars are off and I'm falling all over the place. Can I handle that, that being that vulnerable and knowing that people are seeing me in that way? And I realized, you know what, I'd rather try that than give the whole thing up. And so what happened is I stayed, and it took them a while. It took them years, but they eventually, you know, my promotion came years, came 13 years after my diagnosis. No, wait, no seven years after my diagnosis. I stayed for 13 more years, but seven years after my diagnosis is when I was promoted. So I, I think how I got myself out of the depression was taking the pressure off of myself to be perfect and, and also grieving, grieving the life I, ha- I thought I had to have and accepting my new life and just being okay that I felt the way that I felt. Well, thank you for sharing, I mean, such an honest testimonial. I, I just appreciate it so much. What gets me into a happy place, Zipporah, is playing games. 
<laughs> so your first, we're going to play your first game in a minute, but first we're going to hear another song by Zia called Fire Meets Gasoline. Supermodel Heidi Klum stars in the video. Somewhere in the middle of the video, Klum's character sets fire to her home, and together with her partner, they watch it burn. I don't know if that's upbeat or not, but whatever. Sia never appears in the video, but her blonde wig sure does. Let's take a listen to Fire Meets Gasoline. Late night, it's time to pe- test author of Sugarless Plums, The Poor Cars, Knowledge of Diabetes History with our game Diabetes Time Machine. Zipporah, try to put these three milestones in the correct chronological order, starting with what you think happened first. If you want to call a friend, tonight we have our two lovely educators standing by, Patricia Addy Gentle from Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Beverly S. Adler, who uh, was the author of the book you participated in for her, which was My Sweet Life successful women living with diabetes. All right, here we go. Here are the three milestones that you have to put in order. The year the New York City Ballet was founded, the year the American Diabetes Association was founded, and the year Harold Helmsworth distinguished the difference between the two types of diabetes. What do you think the correct order is? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> can I call a friend? <laughs> you can. Do you want to talk to Dr. Beverly Adler or Patricia? Yeah, let's talk to Beverly. Okay. Hello, Dr. Bev. Hey there. How are you? We have a ballet uh, ballerina in need of help. <laughs> help me. Help me. <laughs> what, 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 well, first of all, what year was the New York City Ballet founded, Sephora? Uh, I think it was, what, 42? Well, actually, you know what? That, that's when he started the school. You know, he he had so many companies that didn't make it. I don't know the exact year of the New York City. It might have been in the uh, – I'd have to Google. Can I Google? You could always Google. But we'll let Dr. Bev – Dr. Bev, do you know the order of these three things? I, I actually do know the order of these three things. And Okay. We're ready. Is, we're ready. Uh, <laughs> is we're going to hazard a guess first before we let no, her off? go for uh, it. No, you go for it. <laughs> okay. Well – to go in the correct order, I'm just going to tell you first that the New York City Ballet is the last. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, the very first thing is that um, uh, Harold Hemsworth, um, according to published writings by his son, uh, in 1936, he distinguished the two types of diabetes, which he referred to as insulin-sensitive and insulin-insensitive. And these today are called type 1 and type 2. The the second of those things, the year the American Diabetes Association was founded is next, and that was in 1940. And Hmm. the last is the New York City Ballet was founded by choreographer George Balanchine and Lincoln Kirstein, 
1948. 1948, that's right. <laughs> Thank you. Right. I knew that. <laughs> I knew well, that one. Work. Good work, but guess what? We're not done yet, Zavora. You're still in the hot seat because it's time oh, to play gosh. diabetes oh, numerology. Pressure, pressure. <laughs> You're an entertainer. We figured you'd love to play the game tonight. Here's exactly. how the game works. I'm going to read aloud a random blood sugar value along with a related situation. Then I'm going to ask you how you would deal with the situation, and then our angels, Patricia and Dr. Bev, will discuss your solution and share some other tips. Keep in mind, if you're playing along with us tonight, one solution doesn't work for everyone. Check with your doctor to find out what your specific game plan should be. Zipporah, are you ready to take flight? Yes. Maybe I'll be better at this one, yes. All right, because you're about to play played a game puzzle loosely based on the 1985 film White Knight. Okay. Your situation. <laughs> you're a world-famous ballerina. That's going to be a tough one, right? I think you already were. Who is on a plane forced to land on Soviet territory. It's 1985, everyone. Uh, the pilot said you just to, the pilot just said fasten your seatbelts. We're per, going to prepare for arrival. Your random blood sugar value is 45. What would you do? I would I would put I would eat something. I would put a put a date in my mouth or. I'm, I'm assuming you don't have juice available, but I always keep something sweet right on me. Put it in your mouth. What? So what do you take when you're going? What do you have on you at most of the time? Honestly, I keep I keep dates on me all the time because they're so they're such fast acting sugar for me that I'll just stick a date in my mouth. A, you know, dry a, a date. You know, a date. Mhm. And, let's go and to it's Patricia. just easy. It's not. All, it's, it doesn't go bad. It's always in my bag. I have. I have them everywhere. I have them in every every bag, every piece of luggage, all over the house. Great, Patricia. Uh, she's talking about fast-acting sugars. Uh, we have a, a random blood sugar value of 45. What do you want to add? That is wonderful. I think dates will be uh, very appropriate, being um, dried type food. So uh, the abundance of sugar and the way that the sugar is absorbed and gets into the bloodstream is pretty rapid, but uh, there are other choices as well. And since you're on the plane and about to prepare for landing, I would think uh, something like glucose tablets that most people, uh, well, we teach all of our patients with diabetes to keep those handy, and they are really quick-acting and they're transportable, something like you already stated, uh, the orange juice or juice is not available and especially if you're on the plane and you're landing. So you need something that is transportable and easy to use. And glucose tablets or glucose gel or any of those prepared uh, solutions would be wonderful. But the dates are an excellent uh, option as well. Okay, and Dr. Bev, if you're flying somewhere you've never been before, you're not really quite sure what the medical situation is there over there, what, what's a general guideline you could give to someone who is living with type 1 who's taking insulin? Do they take just enough for their trip, or should they take less or more with them? Uh, they should definitely always plan for the unexpected. And how can you plan for the unexpected by you take extra supplies along because you don't know what situations you may run into. And if you're actually traveling, um, even domestic and especially international, you should be having a letter from your endocrinologist's office um, stating that you're going to be carrying uh, certain supplies 
um, along, and that's uh, that's also very important. Um, I, I, I like uh, Zipporah's ideas of the uh, dates. The only thing I'm going to say is they leave you with sticky fingers. <laughs> my problem is in the night I have to brush my teeth, so that's the only drawback of that one. But, um, you know, I, I, I have to say I, I'm such an anal little health food person that any time I'm putting something in me, I want it to be healthy. And also I like them. They're, they're such a treat for me that, uh, that I always – Enjoy it. I have a good time with my dates. And I have tried the glucose tablets. I just don't, I, 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 they're not as, as, they don't taste as good to me as a date does. So I, I, I know from so many years, I've, I'm going almost 30 years here with diabetes, so I know exactly how much of the date to eat um, that it doesn't send me too high. And that's your experience speaking, because I'm going to say, like, glucose tablets, are, they're, um, they're measured out. You know how many grams of That's exactly right. That. And now there's also something new I'm not sure if you've seen on the market, and my patients have brought it to my attention. There's uh, a glucose liquid, and it comes in a little bottle. It's two fluid ounces. I carry it in my pocketbook, and it comes in various flavors. And I know that if I'm traveling, I'm within the limit of the three fluid ounces, so I don't have to get rid of it. And, um, th- you again, it's measured, so you know exactly how many uh, grams of, of glucose you're getting. But you have that experience with the dates, but if somebody doesn't, this is already pre-measured. The glucose. That, that, the that's right, that's right. Everybody should, should abs- absolutely be careful because it's very easy to eat too much of them and go too high. Very, very easy to, for that to happen. Absolutely. Well, thank you for helping us raise awareness in a fun new way. And because of that, Zipporah, we're going to give you some gift baskets. One's from New Naturals. It's filled with diabetes, diabetic safe, low glycemic, tooth-friendly sweeteners. A cabbage cheese gift basket filled with an assortment of delicious low-fat cheeses. Dr. Greenfield's diabetes lotions and products which are specifically designed for people with diabetes with sensitive and delicate skin, and a book from Spry Publishing, which is the premier publisher of health books and media. Before you go, tell everyone where they could, uh, how they could get a copy of The Sugarless Plum. Oh, it's on Amazon. You can go to my website, ZipporahCars.com. And, uh, yeah, I think those are probably the best ways to get it, through my website or on Amazon. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We blogged about it today, too. So if you go to divabag.org, you can learn more about Zipporah on our website, and there's links to your website as well in the book. Thank you so much. I don't have a Mets game to go to, but I do have two adults waiting to dance. (laughs) All right. Well, have a good time. Go go whip some people in shape. (laughs) There you go. All right. Well, in 2010, Sia decided to retire from her career as a recording artist, and to manage, uh, she managed to start a career as a songwriter and re- started writing songs for artists including Beyonce, Flo Rida, and Rihanna. This month's uh, diva inspiration, Sia, is going to give us another song from her A Thousand Forms of Fear, courtesy of Sony Music. This one's called Burn the Pages. Let's take a listen.
Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diabetic, and it's time to welcome back two of the loveliest diabetes educators from around the country who I finally refer to as the Charlie's Angels of Outreach. Let's welcome back Dr. Beverly Adler. I was going to say Patricia Addy Gentle, but I'm going to say Dr. Beverly Adler. Hi, Dr. Bev. Hello, Max. I didn't have a chance. And Patricia Addy Gentle. Here she is. Hi, Max. All right, we're going to start with you, Patricia. You know, we're talking about diabetes and depression. In a little bit, I will be uh, talking specifically to Dr. Bev at length about this topic. But right now I wanted to focus uh, with you and um, Patricia and ask you about um, there's a big discussion on the Internet about using marijuana to curb the effects of diabetes. Studies claim that pot can help increase blood flow and also help control glucose levels. And um, it's even now being converted into a cream, which has been shown uh, to help relieve some of the tingling of neuropathy, uh, specifically in extremities like your foot or fingers. Uh, Does it really work? And what are your thoughts on the idea of using marijuana as something to help with your diabetes self-care? Well, um, the idea of using marijuana is still kind of controversial in a lot of practices and um, and uh, the diabetes industry has different mixed feelings concerning uh, that usage. I can say that the the increase of blood flow and the altered sense of the uh, sensation of neuro, neuropathic pain is definitely um, part of the characteristics that we do see in using marijuana. But one of the things that you also have to remember is when uh, the the neuropathic pain or is altered, you're also altering your sensations of many other things, such as the um, awareness that a blood sugar may be low, or you alter the uh, sensation and and appetite, uh, the satiation, being satisfied with food. So there are a lot of different things that go along as well that might also cause you to have some compromise in diabetes management where you have some advantages. There are also disadvantages. All right. Thanks for that. All right, Dr. Bev, um, before we begin, I want to mention that you just contributed to a new guide for people living with type 2 diabetes, this comprehensive booklet discusses everything from glucose monitoring to meal planning to dealing with the emotional components of diabetes, like we'll be talking about later on in this show. And it could be an excellent um, complement to your provider's guidance for listeners who are interested in finding out more. Where should they go? Well, thank you very much for um, t- for referring to that. First, I really need to say I want to congratulate you on your five years of podcasting. Thank you and very much. Now we will return to me. <laughs> okay, succeeding in your first thirty days with type two diabetes is the name of the guide, and it's uh, published from it's online at diabetescare.net, and um, it's pretty comprehensive. Um, it, it does talk, well, there's a chapter which I've contributed on coping with a new diagnosis. Um, the, the idea from diabetescare.net, it's not only for those who are newly diagnosed, despite what the title says, it's also those who are living with type 2 for a long time and really could use a refresher as well. And it, it goes through 
chapters on, on glucose monitoring and nutrition and physical activity and meal plans. It's, it's, it's really comprehensive. And um, my chapter, per se, um, t- t- I uh, follow the, uh, the topics that you and I have talked about on uh, your podcast as well, about um, the emotional um, adjustments of um, coping with uh, newly diagnosed, uh, the emotional stages. And I start off... I'm sorry to interrupt, but we just heard how, like, Zipporah said seven years into it, she was still coping with that adjustment. So, like you said, it's not just for newly diagnosed. It could be for anyone who's been living with diabetes for a while, right? Absolutely. And it's it's somewhat arbitrary that um, the way this is set up is for your first 30 days. But as you're pointing out, absolutely, it could be a lot longer than 30 days. And uh, and I, I break it down into four weeks. And the, the first week I talk about coping with denial. The second week I talk about coping with anger. The third week I talk about coping with bargaining. And, oh, the fourth week I start talking about coping with diabetes, of depression. And, um, you know, I, I discuss what what it is, and I discuss how to accept and strategies to cope with it. So, um there, I'd like to very... just jump right in on that. I know we have our hot topic. We'll come back to that. But since we are right on depression right now, and you just mentioned it, I know people have been waiting for us to get to this subject tonight. What is depression? And, I mean, what is it exactly? Well, depression has uh, a number of uh, very specific symptoms, okay? And, um, and those are... Um, outlined, we'll say, in the, the, our, our guide, uh, not diabetes guide, but from psychology and psychiatry. It's, it's the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, and it's now DSM-5. And um, it, it outlines specifically um, symptoms. So even though I don't want to go into all those symptoms, that would be specifically like a clinical depression. And sometimes people are depressed without necessarily a major depressive disorder. But um, typical um, feelings that go along with uh, depression are um, feeling sad, feeling empty, feeling hopeless, um, being tearful, um, lacking the joy in life, um, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain, uh, having difficulty sleeping, so either not sleeping enough or oversleeping. And That's interesting because I read on social media today that it's commonly re- described as a kind of tired that sleep can't fix. I like that, yes. It's very difficult. It's so difficult. I I I, I hear about it a lot from my patients. That, uh, and it is... It's commonly misdiagnosed, isn't it? Because I also read that about 70% of people on antidepressants don't have actual depression. I don't know that. <laughs> that that's, a, that's a possibility that uh, if, if uh, somebody who's making prescriptions does not do enough of an in-depth evaluation, then somebody could be misdiagnosed. I'll, I'll agree with that. But that's a very high statistic. You said yeah, 70%? I just I read it as preparing for the show. Wow. 
Well, I'm going to say, in addition, there's other symptoms of depression. Not everybody has to have everything. If everybody, if somebody has everything, then that's a major depressive disorder. So other things are um, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt every day, um, difficulty thinking, feeling indecisive, um, every day, and then clearly, if somebody's having recurrent thoughts of self-harm, a plan of committing suicide, definitely you need help immediately. But um, if it's not a major depression, it could be a long-standing depression. Okay, so it's not every day, and there's a different diagnosis for that, and that's called dysthymia. And then um i think a lot of people have dysthymia they kind of it's a it's a living with the depression it's like walking through pea soup it's it's slow and arduous but you get through it and uh i i see a lot of that and uh now does it take a while for someone it seems like someone has to live with it for a little while before they would even realize they had depression because sometimes we all have a bad day or, you know, a bad week or, you know, like Kathy Lee Gifford just lost her husband mm-hmm. uh, two days ago. So I'm sure, uh, like Zipporah was saying, hers was kind of based on the idea of like it was the end of her ballet career. So that could really put you in a funk if there's a major life moment in your you're going through. So you, do you know what I mean? Does it seem like I, it has a, a certain kind of time frame that you're, you have to kind of be with it in order to find, figure out that you have it? Okay, well, for the minimum, for a major depressive disorder, the minimum, you have to be going through this for two weeks. That's the minimum. But somebody like, let's say, Kathy Lee, who I feel very sorry for, she's going through bereavement. She may be crying every day, and she may be, I, I think she's actually, from what I've heard, rejoicing about her husband's life. But um, if she were, you know, losing appetite and crying and feeling there's nothing worthwhile living, all of the, you know, typical depression symptoms, they would not be called depression in her state because of the circumstances she would be going through bereavement. And that's that's entirely different. Okay. And, I mean, to a certain extent, there's such a taboo around this word depression that mm-hmm. people around you have a huge impact on you. And I'm just wondering, we have a couple callers, but before we take them, I'm wondering, what do you? what is someone supposed to say to someone who might be experiencing some or all of those symptoms of depression? Well, um, I, I think it helps to let someone know that uh, depression is really pretty common and that they're not going crazy and I think uh, it helps, um, first of all, to, if you can do activities, it's hard because you don't have a lot of energy when you have depression, but if you can try to do activities that are going to help naturally to to improve mood and things like that is being active. And I always recommend if you can step outside of yourself and instead of focusing on your depression, please volunteer and do something for other people. It will now give you a new purpose, and you might be making other people happy and and thereby 
helping your own mood to be happier. I love that advice. I think it's wonderful. All right, we're going to go to the phones. We've got a caller from Los Angeles. I believe it's Sherry, who's been on the show before. Hi, Sherry. Welcome to Diabetes Late Night. Hi, Max. How are you? Good. Welcome. Do uh, you have a question for Dr. Beth? Yes, I do. I'm, I'm just wondering, um, because I am a long-term diabetic, and I, I have had a partial amputation, but this is this is what I have to ask, because the medical profession really doesn't consider that, and even in, um, you know, recuperating, they were prescribing me medication for for pain, and it just really affected me in a bad way. You know, I wasn't that where I was just so depressed, you know, I wanted to do something or blah, 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 but it was like, okay, this medicine is making me nauseated, this medicine, and nobody would talk to you about it. It's like, just take it because <laughs> you need to do that. Know, and that was it, you know. So I just wonder, you know, the the impact on people when they are prescribed medications and it does have effect of depression or, or you know what I mean? How are they addressing that? Hi, Sherry. Uh, thank you for your Hi. question. Um, I'm going to say, if you uh, are, if anybody is under care of a doctor who is not listening to you, you either have to talk louder. <laughs> Get more advocates to talk and join your voice or change doctors. Those those are my suggestions. But, yes, these pain medications can have a side effect to affect you emotionally. It's not you. It's a side effect of the medication. Some of yes. them can make you nauseous. Some of them can add weight. And some of them can make you depressed and have crazy thoughts and yes. uh the doctor should certainly be aware that's a possibility, and when you express it, they should be listening. That well, seems to be very common, did, though, that there's a vicious cycle like Sherry's describing for some people, yeah. like that weight gain, uh, you know, accelerating or exasperating a, a, a type 2 diagnosis of diabetes, or, you know, it just seems... Um, I don't know. You just hear so much about it, Doctor Bev. I don't. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I mean, it does seem like this is quite common that you hear stories like this, or I have heard these stories. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to tell you the worst place for any person with diabetes to end up: the hospital. Yes. <laughs> hospitals are clueless, and I'm sorry to be making such a generalization, but they are pretty well clueless how to manage diabetes, and they get very nervous, and um, they they don't, I just don't understand how hospitals are, are you know, they, they give you, they underdose uh, insulin, and they, they don't follow an endocrinologist's, you know, um, normal regimen, and uh, it is very difficult, so um, I, I hear curious. what you're yeah, I hear what you're saying. I'd be curious to hear what doc- I mean. I'm sorry, not doctor. I'd be curious to know what Patricia Addy Gentle would say because she's a registered nurse as well as certified diabetes educator. What are your thoughts on it, Patricia? I do agree. Hospitals, um, well, for the most part, look at it like this: hospitals are designed to provide acute care, not ongoing chronic condition management. And so when a person is in the hospital, the acute issues are addressed and not, uh, you know, like what's going on right now, but not, uh, not 
looked at over a great period of time or what's going to happen at discharge. Sometimes lifestyle and behaviors and underlying things that may kind of come into play, you have to look at the whole person. And you know that this person is being discharged to multiple facets and different things going on in their life. So what happens in the hospital definitely cannot be taught to this person as an ongoing trend or the way that you manage once you're at home. And sometimes it's not looked at that way. All right. And, and Dr. Bell, so I want to take a words, minute. I'm sorry? In the acute care setting, you know, there may be, like, like someone has surgery. Uh, insulin may be indicated, but once they're home and they're doing um, a, a quite different exercise pattern and a different eating pattern and different stress patterns, then that insulin might not be the solution. All right. And uh, listeners, we're going into 15 bonus moments because I'm very excited to minutes, not moments, with our, our team because I want to talk about this topic. Dr. Bev, we've talked about this before, and I think it's so important. You have uh, made a, um, and I don't, I want, you're going to tell us who, who came up with this, but there's a difference between depression and what you call diabetes distress. So sometimes we might think it's one thing and it's something else. I was wondering if you could spend a little time describing that before we go back to Sherry and see if she has another question. Okay, sure. Okay, well, I, I always give due credit to the um, author, uh, creator of um, Diabetes Distress, and that is Dr. William Polanski. He came up with this idea, and um, it's diabetes distress is different from depression in that depression is caused from stress in life not related to diabetes, and diabetes distress is caused by the stressors of living with diabetes. And uh, I, I, that's as simple as I can make it. Is and, that the, is uh, that, uh, is that for both type 1 and type 2, or is that specifically, are we looking at diabetes distress for type 1 or or type 2 only? Nope, it's for both. It's definitely okay. for both. Uh, the only thing I'm going to say is the, in the what I referred to before, the, di, the DSM-5, okay, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual for Psychologists and Psychiatrists, they, they are not uh, giving any credibility to the words diabetes distress. They will only diagnose it as depression. But we can know better that um, depression, you can help with antidepressive medication. Diabetes distress, you can, I mean, you can have antidepressant medication, but that's not going to resolve your stress of living with diabetes. Depression can be caused from neurochemicals in your brain and hormones and lots of things that are within and not your environment, and so that medication can can help balance. But when you're living with diabetes, type 1 or type 2, we have lots of stressors, and there's no medication that's going to be able to balance us because we're not out of balance. It's all the stress from our environment. 
Okay, well then I kind of want to roll this into something that was reported in Health Day News that you sent me as well, that they they did a study consisting of 70,000 women ages 50 to 79 years old, revealing that how detrimental refined carbohydrates from soda to desserts to crackers or chips and candy bars can be on the emotional and mental well-being of a person. The study reports that not only uh, they not only claim that association between refined uh, carbohydrates and depression, uh, they're saying there's some kind of link between these two things and that people who, who have a lot of high carbohydrates can lead to depression. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm going to start with part of the conclusion of that study, and it's very important to, to um, emphasize that study does not prove cause and effect. So right. that's the first thing. Um, I'm going to say uh, I, I think that uh, it, it's quite possible that, uh, and they certainly have a large sample uh, for their study, that, um, yes, eating refined uh carbohydrates like bread and and sugars and sodas and snacks can affect it can affect your um your mood okay and i think it can also it, it there can be like a secondary effect okay so if women are are eating all of those foods and then they see their waistline getting larger it can affect them secondarily to feel depressed when they look at their their body image and their they're unhappy about that. Um, it's certainly not helpful uh, to be eating those foods. That's that's what the researchers are, you know, um, discussing. And their recommendation, which is the same recommendation that we uh, encourage people with type one or type two to, to do, is to eat more healthfully. So have fiber, have whole grains, have fruits and vegetables, not fruit juice. And um, when you eat healthy, you will feel healthy. I can't prove that cause and effect, but uh, they do uh, They do go together. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, I talk to so many people, and I feel like a lot of times they feel like their body let them down with a diagnosis of diabetes. And when we go, if we backtrack for a minute and talk about the um, diabetes distress and what you're saying yeah. is around the day-to-day management and, the, and the, um, the daily grind of it, we should say, actually, and, and that could really just wear you out, along with this continued, un, this continued being baffled all the time as to why on Tuesday was I not diagnosed and on Wednesday I was. What happened in 24 hours that my pancreas shut down or my pancreas has a slower ability to work or whatever the reason is, but there seems to always be this kind of, un, you know, people always can't get the answer they want, and I could see how it just continually can fuel into either of those ideas that you spoke about earlier, which can then lead to people wanting comfort food and wanting those carbs, and everything we mentioned is not broccoli and and Brussels sprouts or lima beans, but are the things that are most readily available at the store. They last the longest, and, you know, we've seen research on this before about how addictive those things are with the salt and the sugar combinations. It seems like, you know, going back to Sherry, it's a little bit of a vicious cycle all around on every side of the table. I excuse me. I understand what you're saying. I'm going to say that you don't generally. It does not actually happen overnight that um, your pancreas works one day and the next day it doesn't. 
I'm going to say for type 2s, it's generally much more gradual in, uh, in its onset. And I'm going to say that uh, from what I see with uh, many people, they already have an inkling, but they don't want to accept. And so they don't go to the doctor because they don't want to hear the news. And um, an inkling generally comes from having a family history and recognizing that they're they're not feeling as well as they used to and just trying to push through. That's like dysthymia. They're trying to just push through, and they don't really, really want to hear the answer. So it doesn't really happen overnight quite that way. And I'm going to say for type 1s, it's... It is um, it is faster in its onset, and uh, you you can't live with uh, denial for too long because you'll end up in the hospital. But uh, it's it's the faster the onset, the, the bigger the adjustment. I'll say it right. that way. And uh, Patricia, do you have anything to add? Um, I, I do agree. Type 1 is uh, the type that has a more rapid onset, and the type 2 is gradual. Uh, sometimes diagnoses, I can add this, that sometimes the diagnosis in type 2 is not, uh, you know, we fish around and do all kinds of testing, and the fasting glucose level tends to be, um, you know, maybe just a little bit, off the limits, but not extremely high. But we're finding that the diagnosis with the prandial blood sugar are meaning that the person has eaten, and that way we are able to look at how well the glucose is tolerated after a meal. And so uh, we're we're able to make a diagnosis a little more um, definitely with that postprandial rather than the fasting sugars. And in some practices, we'll, we are still seeing the fasting as the only blood sugar that's being used. So okay. that may, um, in a way, kind of delay the onset of that diagnosis. And I, I'm going to also say, I, actually, this, this past weekend I was volunteering with um, my local Lions Club, and we were doing a blood screening, uh, excuse me, a diabetes screening, and uh, there were nurses there who did a very fast A1C, I'm going to say within five to six minutes, and these um, members of the community got their A1Cs read, and if they were above, um, uh, now Patricia can tell me what the right number is, if it was above, I think, 6.0, they were informed that... um, it's time for them to go see a doctor and that, uh, you know, they were they were probably would be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Yes, but that, that's pretty much uh, so the guideline, but, but about a 6.5%. I have a lot of thoughts on screening people in public, and I'm not going to share them tonight, but I want to go back to Sherry. Sherry, did you have another question for either Dr. Bev or Patricia? Um, yeah, I do have a question. I'm sorry about the background. I'm actually in the doctor's office. I'm outside. I wanted to know how she felt about the treatment of any type of um, depression or anything like that with natural remedies um, on a health health thing. And I want to put just healthy like the the 
ballerina said, the healthier it is, I'll put it in my body, the better. So if there were a situation where I needed something, which I'm good now, but do you have any, um, you know, any... Well, that is a big thing, Dr. Bev. You hear about this holistic approach to everything today. I think Sherry's asking, like, is there a healthier way you could manage either depression or diabetes distress versus using medications like antidepressants? Yes. I I understand the question. I'm I'm going to say it's not just one thing. And so if you're going to try to manage the emotion, it's not just – what you eat it's going to be your lifestyle as well and it's it's important to put it all together okay not you need you know um yes holistic medications i'm going to say they're not proven they're not fda approved which is not to say that they're not effective but they're not fda approved um i would i would never say no uh to trying you know something to enhance your your um your mood but um it's not just that you can have a pill or something like that i think it's important to look at the whole the whole in the holistic uh approach so you you need to do things uh for your own um peace of mind peace of heart i think you need to you know think about um activities like you know whatever you're capable of if it's yoga or pilates or if that's not working uh just uh meditation it's whole the whole body not just holistic you know medication great i think that's great advice and um we always run out of time with these big topics i i appreciate that conversation <laughs> we've got to spend more time on it, but right now we're going to meet my uh, final guest in a moment, Mama Rosemarie. But first, let's take a listen to another cut from Sia's A Thousand Forms of Fear, courtesy of Sony Music. Look at me, I'm such a basket case. Delivered to you wrapped in cellophane. Waiting on your doorstep every day. Delivery, a basket filled with pain Patience is your virtue, saying to mine I'd have fallen through the cracks without your love tonight I'm your groundhog and I'm skating on thin ice But you see me at your feet and carry me inside you're listening to Diabetes Late Night, and I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek. It's time to welcome to the show Mama Rosemarie with a Mother Your Diabetes tip. Hi, Mama Rosemarie. Hi, Mr. Diva Bedek. What did you think of tonight's uh, topic about depression and diabetes? Some good, some well, good I, advice, right? It sure was. I, and very good advice for people with depression and, and um, affiliated with diabetes or anybody with depression that's very good advice and I really like the date um, uh, recipe that she gave for um, taking care of her low I thought that was absolutely wonderful I never thought of that the date and you are a big fan of dates I do. I do like them. But we will caution. Um, it's portion control. You heard Dr. Bev and Patricia both say that, so we got to be aware of those. how many carbs yeah. are in those dates. Um, right. I'm, I'm interested to hear what your Mother Your Diabetes tip would be for this month. 
Well, you know, a lot of people, it's still summertime, and a lot of people are going on vacation and going up to the mountains to get cool. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Lyme disease, which is the most common tick-borne infectious disease in the United States. It can cause symptoms of fever, headaches, body aches, and fatigue. If left untreated, it can also cause more severe health problems and in some cases may even prove fatal. The best way to protect yourself from these ticks is to avoid wooded and bushy areas. Walk in the center of the trails. Uh, Wear protective clothing like boots, long pants, long sleeves, and the best thing is to use an insect repellent. So that's my advice for the rest of the summer, and I'm going to say ciao for now. All right, and we're going to see you back for our um, murder mystery podcast in September. Oh, I wouldn't miss it for anything. <laughs> all right, well, thanks for being on the show. And I want to thank all You're my welcome. guests for, uh, for being on the show and, and uh, our callers tonight, Sherry from L.A. Uh, it's just wonderful. I, I want to take a minute and just thank Dr. Beverly Adler. She's been on the show several times this year. I always put her on the spot. Uh, off the record and ask her to uh, step out of her comfort zone and she does an amazing job with such grace and confidence and insight and intellect and I want to tell you if you're going through any kind of mental health issue and I love the fact that today we don't say mental illness because that has an I instead we like to approach, approach mental health issues with a togetherness which would mean a we which means it's mental wellness um you should definitely talk to a professional in that on that matter and not be afraid to seek medical help, as uh, Lorraine said so poignantly with her poem earlier. Now take a minute and please subscribe to our DivaBetic e-newsletter at divabetic.org. Visit us at DivaBetic's Facebook page and, and watch some of my videos on Mr. DivaBetic's YouTube channel. They might put you in a good mood. Remember, every diva has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be part of yours. Let's get happy and stay healthy together. We're going to close the podcast with one more song from Sia's 1,000 Forms of Fear album. Enjoy. You terrify me because you're a man. You're not a boy. You got some power. And I can't treat you like a toy The road less Traveled by a little girl You disregard the mess While I try to control the world Don't leave me Stay here and frighten me Don't leave me Come now enlighten me Give me all you got Give me your wallet and your watch Give me your firstborn Give me the rainbow and the So go and challenge me Take the reins and see Watch me squirm, baby, but you are just what I need And I'll never play a fair game I've always had the upper hand But what good is intellect and their play? I can't respect any man Yeah, I want to play Me. We're still not kissing you, yeah, I've cried, you got too close and I pushed and pushed open, you bite so I could run, run And that I did, but to the dust, you saw those teeth marks They weren't all yours, you had been thrust into a history That had not worked for me, into a history From which I could not flee, so go on, shake me 
Shake until I give it up Well, I'm a doubt, baby I know that we can make some love So go and challenge me Take the reins and see Watch me squirm, baby But you are just what I need And I am never played A fair game I've always had the upper hand But what good is intellect and 